Welcome to another inspirational message by Pastor Ron Hammonds, Senior Pastor at Golden Triangle Church on the Rock in Beaumont, Texas. For more information about Church on the Rock and Ron Hammonds Ministries, visit cotr.com. Well, tonight we're going to be going to Acts chapter 25. Uh, again, we're just continuing to walk through the book of Acts. And Acts chapter 25, the next chapter, uh, is, is where we are going to launch out tonight. But in order to, to begin Acts 25, in order to understand how Acts 25 begins and, and what's going on when we get to verse 1, Acts 25, we have to back up at least two verses into chapter 24. Uh, just so that we can, uh, you know, uh, understand here what is actually going on in the Apostle Paul's life. You know, it, it's about the year A.D. 60, give or take just a little uh, bit, you know, during that year, uh, A.D. 60. And uh, those of you that go with me to Israel this year, I, I, I will take you to the city of Caesarea where this was happening. When we get to this port city, which was a very important Roman port city, when we get there, I will, I, 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 it, it, it's been changed a little bit, but I'll show you where the water came up on the port city, and I'll, I'll, I'll show you a step that was there 2,000 years ago, a step that the Apostle Paul would have stepped off of the, the, uh, the uh, dock onto this step to get into the ship that he went to. Uh, to Rome in and, and, and went to prison in. It's an amazing place. And, uh, you know, men like Cornelius lived there in Caesarea. Uh, people like Philip the evangelist lived there. It's an amazing place. There's a, there's a theater there uh, that, that has just, you know, been preserved from that era, Roman theater, that, that holds 5,000 people. It's the theater that, uh, that Herod, one of the Herods, you remember he was giving an, uh, an oration and somebody said, you know, oh, you sound like a god because they were trying to build him up and court his favor. He said, yeah, I do, don't I? And uh, that's, it's not the voice of a man, it's the voice of a god. He said, yeah. And all of a sudden the Bible says he was consumed with worms because he did not give glory to God and he died there. I'll, I'll, I'll show you that royal theater uh, that, that royal uh, place uh, box there that he had that, uh, that you know, he, he, that, that happened to him. We'll, we'll see some wonderful things. But this is taking place um, as Caesarea was a very important Roman city. It was the capital and the governor of the province that governed the, the Jewish affairs. The governor lived there, okay? And uh, in, in chapter 24, we're about to change governors, and history tells us why we are changing governors. It's simply because uh, uh, the, the, uh, the governor, who was named Felix, uh, he was not, you know, he was not liked. Uh, for about two years, the Apostle Paul had been incarcerated here. And Felix and his wife would call Paul in and Paul would talk to him about righteousness and talk to, you know, we, we, we talked about that last week. And so this went on for about the space of two years. Well, at the end of this two years of Paul's um, arrest and his residence in Caesarea, in verse 26 of chapter 24, it says, Meanwhile, he, talking about Governor Felix, the Roman governor of the province governing the, the Jewish affairs, he also hoped during this two years that money would be given him by Paul. He was looking for a bribe. You know, he didn't think Paul was guilty. He just thought Paul was rich. 
Okay. And he was, uh, because he, he, he uh, was to a good family, you know, he had means and a lot of people come to him. And so he kept him there for a couple of years. He'd bring him in and talk to him occasionally. And, uh, and, and he, he was hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe and give him money, which was fairly common in that day and not too uncommon in this day as well. Uh, therefore, Governor Felix sent for Paul more often and conversed with him. The reason that he kept sending for him is he kept thinking, this guy's finally going to offer me a bribe and so I'd let him go well but after two years verse 27 says uh, Porcius Festus governor Festus he succeeded Felix and Felix he really wanted to court the favor of the Jews wanting to do the Jews a favor because he wanted a favor from them he's the outgoing governor and he was really wanting to do them a favor so he did not release, he didn't pardon Paul. He just left Paul bound, which was not normal, okay? Uh, you know, it, it, it just wasn't. The history and the times and uh, tell us, you know, that, that Paul had been living there for two years. He kept bringing Paul in. He was hoping for money. He knew that he wasn't uh, guilty. And uh, Felix knew that the charges against the apostle Paul were bogus but uh, he was greedy he wasn't out for justice it's evident that he cared more about money than he cared about justice and and uh, you know the Jews did not like Felix governor Felix he had not been liked because he he really favored himself and he didn't favor them he kind of ruled you know whatever would favor him he would he, he would do and so the Jews were really you know uh, complaintive back to Rome about governor Felix and so uh, it comes the time that governor Felix is going to be released from his office and called back to Rome and Festus is going to become the governor of the province and so Felix here realizing Paul's not going to give him any money you know and he's not guilty but I'm still not going to let him go because if I let him go it'll make the Jewish leaders mad and I cannot afford for the Jewish leaders to be mad because of, I need to do them a favor so they won't complain to to Nero about me because if they do then it could cost me my head because there's been so many complaints going back to Rome about me I'm going to try my best now to feather my nest and so I'm just going to, I, I know they hate Paul. I'm going to leave Paul bound. Well, Emperor Nero was about in his seventh year by this time of reigning. And his first five years were pretty good. We've talked about Nero a lot in here. But, but he was beginning to be a pretty bad dude about now. Okay, uh, and, and you didn't want to mess with, with Nero, with the emperor. He sent Festus to replace Felix, called Festus, uh, called call, uh, Felix back. And uh, it was a custom in that day and in our day to pardon people. Presidents and kings, they pardon a lot of people. It's one of the last official acts. Did, did, did you guys know that, that that's, that's what, you know, an outgoing governor, an outgoing president, you know, a, a, a king when he is about to die often writes and leaves a list of things to, to be done or, or things on, you know. Uh, and, and here, this governor, it, 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 it was normal that one of his last official acts would be, uh, uh, you know, would be to pardon. In fact, uh, there are a number of pardons that U.S. presidents give when they're about to go out of office. 
Um, Y'all know that? Uh, in, in fact, let, let me, let me, let me uh, give you an idea of how many pardons that, 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 that presidents give normally in the last days of their office, sometimes on the last day, okay? And then uh, sometimes throughout their administration. Well, the U.S. presidents and the number of pardons that they issue, uh, uh, now these don't reflect the clemencies or the, or the, or the remissions or the, you know, the, the, where they've commuted a sentence. Uh, Franklin D. Roosevelt holds the, the, the record for 2,819 pardons. Wow, isn't that amazing? In fact, if you count the, the commutations and the, and, and, and the clemencies and all, uh, he's, he's up to about 3,900 people that he let go who were, you know, found guilty. Isn't that interesting? But remember, he, he was president for 12 years. He was in his 13th year, in his fourth term, early in his fourth term when he died. So he was president longer than anybody else. But um, Harry Truman is, 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 is second with uh, 1,913 pardons. Eisenhower. President Eisenhower, uh, 1,110. Woodrow Wilson, 1,087. Lyndon Johnson, 960. Richard Nixon, 863. Uh, Calvin Coolidge, 773. Herbert Hoover, I thought y'all might enjoy this, 672. Theodore Roosevelt, 668. Jimmy Carter, 534. John Kennedy, 472. Bill Clinton, 396 pardons. Ronald Reagan, 393. William Taft, which goes... Way back up there. Uh, 383. Gerald Ford, 382. Warren Harding, 386. William McKinley, 291. Barack Obama, 212. George W. Bush, 189. George H. W. Bush, 74. Donald Trump has already done 10 in his administration. Wow. Some of these pardons are really controversial, by the way. Okay. For example, uh, President Bill Clinton... He, in the, in, in the last few days of his office, he pardoned a man named Mark Rich. Mark Rich had been hiding out in Europe for 20 years, two decades. He was a hedge fund, a hedge fund manager. And he was, uh, you know, uh, 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 being charged with racketeering and, and uh, uh, tax evasion and wire fraud. And he, so he took off to Europe and stayed there 20 years. Meanwhile, he was still funding President Clinton's uh, uh, campaigns. And so, uh, you know, uh, for, for 20 years. And so uh, he even uh, was, was doing business with Iran, which was forbidden for Americans to do that, uh, while Iran was holding hostages, actively holding hostages. And so the last few days, uh, uh, President Clinton, uh, just before he left office, pardoned Mark Rich. Um, uh, President Clinton actually, uh, uh, one of the the people on the very last day of President Clinton's uh, um, uh, office is he pardoned his brother, Roger. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? I love reading history. Don't you guys love, you know, I, I just love history. Now, Roger had been not only charged, but had also, uh, through the adjudication process, had actually been convicted and put in jail for conspiracy to distribute cocaine. But... In the last few hours of Bill's uh, administration, he pardoned his brother and stepped out of office. You know, hey, I, you know, I can't blame him. I'm just reading it for you. It's it's, it's very interesting. Uh, you know, Richard Nixon. Do y'all remember Jimmy Hoffa? Y'all remember this Teamsters boss? Richard Nixon pardoned Jimmy Hoffa, who was a Teamster boss. Now, now Richard Nixon loved 
to record his own phone calls. Y'all remember that? Which was not a good idea, okay? <laughs> By the way, I think Trump is being, uh, you know, uh, talked to about some of those things right now. But, but, but in, uh, you know, uh, President Nixon said, well, I, I pardon Jimmy Hoffa, you know, under the condition that he will not be involved in unions anymore. But when the tapes actually came out and were revealed, we know that on his phone conversation with Jimmy Hoffa in prison, that he was in agreement between him and that he would, he would go back and get involved and become the head of the Teamsters. And he would, he would actually support and he pledged his support and throw all the Teamsters behind Richard Nixon in his next election. <laughs> Which we know Jimmy Hoffa went missing. <laughs> and Richard Nixon, uh, you know, resigned. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? Now, President Ronald Reagan, now he pardoned two guys, Mark Felt and Edward Miller during his last part of his administration. Now, who are these guys? These guys were the FBI agents, the head FBI agents during the Watergate time who, who literally were, were uh, breaking into people's house and, 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 and covering up and breaking into uh, the, the Richard Nixon's political opponents' houses during that time. I mean, the, these guys were in charge of that. In fact, later on, it was found out that, that, uh, that uh, Mark Felt is actually a deep throat. He was the he was the guy that came out and and and, and outed everybody. And Ronald Reagan, uh, uh, you know, being privy to that information, he he pardoned him. <laughs> wow. Hey, uh, how about President Ford? He pardoned Richard Nixon. <laughs> Interesting, huh? President Jimmy Carter, he pardoned all the Vietnam draft dodgers. Here's a blanket. If you went to Canada or didn't, you know, forget it, we're, we're over, okay. All the draft dodgers, all the Vietnam draft dodgers, you're pardoned to come back home. President Andrew Jackson, on Christmas Day in 1868, President Andrew Jackson pardoned every person who fought in the Confederate Army. Initially, he pardoned everyone who would swear an allegiance to the Union. That's how I met this lady is that her grandfather, no, her great-grandfather, her grandfather was born in 1869. Her great-grandfather lived uh, up in, I think, maybe Alabama or somewhere. And when he, he was a Confederate, when he got out of the Civil War, he would not swear allegiance uh, under Andrew Jackson and in that provision. And so he... Uh, he lost all of his lands and lost everything else. And then, he, so he moved to Texas where you didn't have to swear allegiance to the union in order to own land. And he bought 640 acres. Uh, and uh, that's the house that, uh, that she was living in. And, uh, you know, whenever uh, I met her right on that same 640 acres uh, that he bought out of the Civil War. Isn't that interesting? Uh, you know, there have been so many odd and perhaps a lot of undeserved pardons. In fact, I received a pardon. I've been pardoned by King Jesus in the last few seconds of his earthly life while he hung on a cross. And I, I beat all these people hands down, the pardon that I got. And so were you pardoned. Governor Felix knew that he was going to be in trouble when he got to Rome. He also knew that Paul was innocent. 
But instead of letting Paul go, he tried to gain favor with the Jews. But it didn't work. Historians tell us that Jewish leaders followed him all the way to Rome and made complaints about him. And when it looked like he might even have his head cut off, his brother stepped up like Bill Clinton did for Roger. And, and he was a, his, his, his brother was a friend of Nero, and so Nero let him go. Interesting, huh? In all of this, we see that Felix tried to gain money from Paul. He tried to gain favor from the Jews. But he never did what was right. You know, the reality is honesty is just the best policy. Even when it looks like that you're up against something that it could cost you quite a lot. Even when you're on trial for your life, honesty is still the best policy. Festus replaced Felix, chapter 25. Now when Festus had come to the province, after three days he went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem. Then the high priest and the chief men of the Jews informed Governor Festus against Paul and they petitioned Governor Festus and they asked a favor of him that he would summon the Apostle Paul bring him to Jerusalem because they planned on laying in wait to ambush Paul along the road from Caesarea to Jerusalem and kill the Apostle Paul. After two years, they're still pledged to kill him. You know, I don't know what Festus may have thought was his reasoning, but it was no doubt by the hand of the Holy Spirit because God had a plan for the Apostle Paul. And whether Festus was aware of that or not, nonetheless, Festus fell into the hands of a living God. And even though man may ponder his path, the Lord directs his steps. And Festus turned down these Jewish leaders' request to have Paul brought to Jerusalem. In fact, Festus stayed there for another 10 days or so, and he told the Jewish leaders, if you want to uh, lodge complaint in my court against him, then you follow me to my place, to my palace, and there you can lodge your complaint against him there. So they did. After about 10 days, they went with Festus back to Caesarea, and there Festus held court. And as Festus was listening to their complaints and to the Apostle Paul's you know, uh, 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 side of the story, Festus realized that he didn't know much about what was going on in this land. But he wanted to impress the Jewish leaders. He needed them on his side because he did not want a repeat of what Felix had done. He didn't want his neck on the line for someone he didn't know. And so, uh, you know, wanting to do the Jews a favor in verse 9, it says, But Festus, wanting to do the Jews a favor, answered Paul and said, Are you willing to go to Jerusalem and there be judged before me for these things that they're accusing you for? You know, uh, Paul had told him, Look, I haven't done anything wrong. 
I haven't offended anybody. I didn't desecrate a temple. I did nothing wrong. He said, well, are you willing to go to Jerusalem and face your accusers there? And I'll be the judge there. And so Paul said, I stand at Caesar's court. I stand here at the judgment seat of Caesar. I am here where I should be judged. To the Jews, I have done no wrong. And you know this. You know. Festus, uh, 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 Felix told you, and I'm telling you, and you've listened to the charges against me, and they have brought no charges worthy of me continuing to be locked up. And you're wanting me now to submit myself and say okay and go there as a Roman citizen and to be judged in their court. No, I will not do it. You know very well I have done nothing. Paul maintains not only his innocence of the charges, but here in chapter 25, Paul lays blame to those who could have and should have just done the right thing. But instead of doing the right thing, they were courting the favor of people that they felt like could benefit them. Earlier, Felix was wanting a bribe money. Earlier, you know, Felix was wanting to court the favor of the Jews. Now Festus is wanting to court the favor of the Jews. Now everybody is wanting something. What is wrong with our political system in this world? What is wrong with everybody wanting something for themselves instead of just doing what is right? And if you don't think I'm talking about our current political situation, you'd be wrong. I am. I am so tired of hearing the political wrangling back and forth and back and forth and everybody trying to get angled instead of just doing what's right and best. And there is a right and there is a best. What is wrong here? It seems that the truth is often not the greatest concern, but rather someone protecting their political advantage and wanting to make sure that they can hold on to their seat or to their office, whether it's 2,000 years ago in Caesarea or whether it is today in the United States of America. I don't know who's right and wrong. But let's find out. Let's work together to find out. And let's punish those who are wrong and let's quit badgering and aggravating people that aren't. And like, I mean, listen, I'm not saying that, that it's clear, but I'm saying that it could be if we would work together. What's wrong with this age-old political systems of people wanting to get some type of personal or political gain, if you ever or your children ever grow up to be in politics, would you just be honest? Would you just decide today that if you serve on a school board or if you end up you know, uh, in, in some city government or some state government or some national government, some platform, or if you are a boss or if you are, uh, you know, uh, someone in charge of other people's lives, serve on a jury, if you, if you, you know, work in, 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 in a system, you know, uh, work at our, at our uh, you know, one of our state, federal, or, or, or county jails, 
would you just do what's right? I know you might not last very long. But just be honest. Just do what's right. Verse 11, the apostle Paul, he he just told Festus, I'm standing at the court I should stand at, and, and you know very well that I have not done anything wrong. Now, you know it. He said, listen in verse 11, if I am an offender or have committed anything deserving of death, I, then, then, then kill me. But if there's nothing in these things of which these men accuse me, then I am not going to agree to be tortured anymore. No one can deliver me to them because I'm a Roman citizen. I have rights. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with the council, answered, You have appealed to Caesar. To Caesar you shall go. Here we see the new governor of the province kind of getting an opportunity to take the easy way out, to wash his hands of the matter. Even though Governor Felix is not judging a righteous judgment. Nonetheless, he has seen Paul do nothing deserving of death. But he is no doubt a player in the plan of God. This gives me hope. I wanted to give you hope tonight. That even though this man, a governor of the Roman province, even though he may not have realized what he was doing. And maybe he thought he was doing best for his career. Maybe he thought that he was taking the easy way out. Maybe he, maybe he imagined a lot of things to pass that judgment and say, I'm sending you to Caesar. What is undeniable now, looking back 2,000 years and realizing that this man, regardless of what he thought, he was a pawn in the hand of God, in the plan of God. You see, God has a plan. And you and I, as much as it may aggravate us at times, we do not have to worry about the big picture and the end result because God has a plan. And even, you know, the, the, as, as the Bible said, the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord and he will turn it. Wherever he desires, just like he turns a river of water, God is bigger. And God, the Bible says, governs in the affairs of men. So I have confidence in my God, even in the midst of what's going on in our nation and in our world and in our generation. I don't want to serve God a tough case you know, from me. I don't want to be hard clay to work with, but I know no matter who is in office, no matter what they think they're deciding, that God will work all things together for good. I'm going to keep praying. I'm going to keep trusting. I'm going to keep believing. I'm going to keep being amazed at some of the silly things I hear from every person I'm, that seems to be talking, but yet I know and I am convinced that my God is able. And if his people who are called by his name will humble themselves and pray and seek his face and turn from their wicked ways. Then he will hear from heaven. Then he will forgive their sins and then he will heal their land. I'm going to trust God just like the apostle Paul was trusting God. You know, 
the reality is that God is in charge. Later, while Felix was waiting to send Paul to Rome, and, 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 and listen to what's happening here. Paul has a calling on his life. He's been already called by God to go to Rome and to go to Caesar's house and to be brought before the emperor and there to testify of Jesus Christ in the house of Caesar. Paul has been called by God to go and, and testify before the strongest, most important and powerful people in his generation. What it takes to get him there in this quagmire is immaterial. But look what's going to happen. Not only is Paul going to accomplish the will of God for his life, which God has already told him, but the government's going to pay for it. Isn't that a pretty good deal? The government... The Roman Empire is going to pay for the transportation. They're going to pay for him to have a personal security attachment so nobody's going to be able to harm him. They're going to pay for his lodging. They're going to pay for his meals. And for a number of years, they're even going to supply paper for him to write some of the books of the Bible on while he is in a, in, in, in a house that attaches to the palace and so that he can continue to minister and all paid for by the government that's accusing him of doing something wrong. Isn't that amazing? I'm amazed at God. Not only is God going to get his way and not only is the Apostle Paul going to fulfill his calling, but it's going to be paid for by the very people that, he, that, that, that are trying to harm him. That is just amazing. Let me tell you, we serve a pretty sharp God. Man. You know what? Felix in Rome, he escapes his, his, his due punishment. That's in the hands of God. You can read historical accounts about him later. Festus is here in Caesarea. He's visited by King Agrippa. And he's telling King Agrippa that the Jews have a problem with Paul. The Jewish leaders are, they have a problem with him. And, and, and this guy hadn't really done anything worthy of death. And, you know, uh, I, I would probably have let him go if he hadn't appealed to Caesar. But, but since he appealed to Caesar, you know, man, I, 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 I guess, I, you know, so in, in chapter 25, down in verse 18, uh, uh, they, they brought Paul in before King Agrippa. Uh, and and he's, he's, Festus is telling King Agrippa the story. And so Festus says to King Agrippa, when the accusers stood up, they brought no accusation against Paul of anything that I imagined. Their, their argument was weak. Their charges were weak. They just didn't, they, 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 they just didn't present anything that I I mean, they hated this guy. He's been, in, he's, he's, you know, he's, he's been arrested for two years, and they, and they want to kill him. And the, I mean, but, but when they stood up to accuse him, they didn't really have anything of real substance. But rather, they had some question against him about their own religion and a certain Jesus. They had some questions about a certain man named Jesus who they said 
was dead, who had died. And if you read this in, a, in, in, in some various translations, literally it says that they stood up and complained because they said Jesus was dead and he said Jesus was alive. And this was the big argument. Let me tell you something. That's always the big argument. Okay? It's always the big argument. It's still the argument put forth today. It's still the big complaint. And it's still the greatest question that the world has today. And it can be the greatest question that your biggest enemies have. Is Jesus dead or alive? It's the greatest religious question. It's the greatest social question. It, if you can answer that question correctly, it answers every other question. Answering that question correctly will change your perspective and change your life. It seems that the argument was about is Jesus alive or is he dead? Well... There are a lot of people or a lot of religions and, and the Jewish religion, you know, and many other, in fact, I, I'm, I'm supposing every other religion. I'll just say that off the top of my head without, you know, uh, vetting it for the moment. But let me just go ahead and offer to you that I suppose every religion says that Jesus is dead. Maybe they say he was a prophet. Maybe they say he was a teacher. Maybe they say he was a good man. But the moment that you admit or buy into this, the, the fact that Jesus is alive today, then you have to deal with him being the son of God, victorious over death and the grave. The moment that you see a resurrected Jesus, if you can answer the question in your own mind, is he dead or is he alive? If you believe he's alive, then that settles it. He can't just have been a good man. He can't just have been a prophet. He can't just have been, you know, someone passing through. And that was the big question of the day. If Jesus is alive, all other questions are answered. He is the Son of God. He is Messiah of the Jews. He is Savior of the world. He is the soon coming King of kings and Lord of lords. Is he alive? Is Jesus alive to you? Let me tell you, if you think Jesus is alive, you might want to consider and reconsider, you know, uh, not doing what he asks. If he's alive. Now, if he's just a historical figure, then what's the difference? You know, Confucius was just as good as him. Buddha, Muhammad. But if he's alive, he's different. And this was the question. This was why the Apostle Paul went to prison was because he said, Jesus is alive. And others said he's dead. But let me tell you, as for me and my house, 
Jesus is alive. And I'm so glad he's alive because, you know, he couldn't pardon my sins if he was dead. In all of this, I do believe that chapter 25 shows us that the course that was taken here, for whatever reason, was a dishonest course. And the reality is honesty is still the best policy. I hope your takeaway tonight is a challenge to yourself that even when and even if your life was on the line, that you would hold to two things. Number one, that you would hold to the fact that Jesus is alive and that you would just be honest and not try to just protect yourself but you rather would protect the truth in Jesus' name.